This is a podcast from Minute Media. Let's go, Dr. Fresh. <laughs> okay, I've I have prepared a special introduction just for this episode. Here it goes. Well, here's a little story I like to tell about three bad brothers you know so well. It started today in history with J. Coach, Jeff, Dave, and me, Jimmy T. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, start him off with a laugh. That's what I always say. Wow. Welcome, everybody, to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. We are diving deep into the world of hip hop 80s, and we have with us a very special guest today, Mr. David Wright. How you doing, David? Very good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. David is a published author, a award-winning advertising video producer. He has got his third book coming out next year in March. You can get the first two on his website. Tell us what that is, Dave. Galahadsdoom.com. My yeah, series is an epic medieval fantasy story along the lines of Lord of the Rings, a strong uh, spiritual or Christian theme to it. Awesome. That is awesome. So on that note, Christian theme... I know that you had some concerns about what we're going to talk about today because you are now deep into the church world and you're a little concerned about some of the topics. And in in going over this stuff, you know, Beastie Boys have, they've come around a bit. They were like, you know, hey, some of the stuff that we did when we were young was pretty stupid and pretty inappropriate and really just not okay. And they've owned it and they've said, but hey, you know, we grew up, right? And we all grew up. We all did stupid stuff when we were kids, and we kind of relish in that stupid stuff. It doesn't mean that we promote it. We wouldn't necessarily want our kids to do it, but it is kind of fun to go back and revisit that stuff a little bit. Exactly. Uh, that's right. I would not want any of my personal notes published when I was in 1986. Right. Yep. So we're covering today hip hop, which I got to say I am familiar with. I was a big break dancer circa. Grade. So we're talking like 83. Yeah, I was I was breakdancing to Thriller. So it had been 83, 84. I caught Breakin' and Breakin' 2 Electric Boogaloo both the day that they came out. I had Grandmaster Flash albums. I had the Sugar Hill Gang albums. I was I, I was I had Houdini. I had Run DMC. I had this stuff growing up. Tell us your name. My my your, break dancing name. Break dancing my name. break dancing name was Doctor Fresh. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you can't make this stuff up. I still use it. I still use it. Like if I go and do like trivia night at some you know, <laughs> restaurant or something, I put Doc Fresh in there as my trivia name. All right, Dave, you got to tell us how you got Deaf Dave. What is that? Well, I can tell you that rap music in the 80s pretty much defined my persona in high school. Um, awesome. I was a top 40 kid, you know, in, in the first half of the 80s. So I was born in 71. I was about 10 years old. In 81, I started really discovering pop music. The earliest pop songs I remember is like Man Eater by Hall & Oates. Yes. And Cuts Like a Knife. And those kind of songs. Sweet. I was, I was, I am the Thriller generation. I was in sixth grade. I was watching when the Motown 25 special aired the first time. Saw the moonwalk. Got hit upside the head by the moonwalk with the rest of America. Yeah. Uh, my first concert ever. I won a radio contest for free tickets to the Victory World Tour to see the Jackson. <laughs> Sweet. That's so, awesome. So I, I, I was a pop music kid. And then, in the summer of 1985. A friend of mine, one of my best friends in high school, he slipped me 
the cassette to Run DMC's King of Rock album in the uh -huh. summer of 1985, and it did something to my brain. And <laughs> I was the rap guy for the rest of the decade. I absolutely just became kind of nuts over Run DMC and the Beastie Boys and LO Cool J and everybody that came out of the rest of the decade. So you had Eric B and Rakim and Cool Mo D and Public Enemy. I was just absorbed all that stuff. I quit listening to the radio. It was all about rap. My name, my name to this day, Def Dave, that's my Twitter handle, Def Dave. It comes straight from Def Jam. I mean, it. all the autographs in my high school yearbook, half of them say Def Dave. They don't even have my real name on it. Um, so according to legend, okay, according to legend, the way I got the name Def Dave was that the Holly, the Holly Hills crew was sitting around the circle freestyling before homeroom. And I would jump in and bust some rhymes. And I was so good that DJ Zeus declared me an official B-boy and gave me the name Def Dave. DJ <laughs> Zeus. according to legend. Woo! So Zeus handed him his name from Mount Olympus. <laughs> so uh, like that's, lightning from the gods. That, that's, that's the okay. story I went with. In reality... <laughs> In the summer of 87, I was going bowling with a couple of white friends <laughs> and we needed to come up with names for the scoring computer. And so we all came up with funny names and I gave myself the name Def Dave in the scoring computer there, the bowling alley. But the friends I that I was with liked it. They repeated it. It stuck. It caught on. And I was already had the reputation as the rap guy. So that became my legacy. That's how People in high school still call me that, and I just embraced it. It's kind of my online name, too. So you weren't handed a flaming pair of Adidas from uh, Mount Olympus or anything? <laughs> <laughs> no, afraid not. <laughs> I, uh, I'm still just kind of reveling in the fact that somewhere out there, somebody's got a yearbook that says, Def Dave signed your crack right in the crevice. <laughs> <laughs> So we are here today to talk about two major albums that changed the face of music in the mid 80s. One wait, is- Wait, 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 wait. Changed the face of music? Changed the face of music. Yeah. Yes, sir. I think yes, you're sir. right. I think you're right. Keep uh, going. So we are going to be talking about Run DMC. Raising Hell. And we're going to be talking about Beastie Boys. License Still. There you go. So are you guys ready to jump in? Hey, I'm just Absolutely. along for the ride. I mean, you you guys are the experts. I took a right turn into hair metal, so. I'm sitting here. I'm in my fresh fly threads with my big Volkswagen medallion around my neck. Yes. I'm eating Colonel Sanders, drinking Heineken brew. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to dig into these rhymes like a pagoda. Um, All right. I'll toast you with my brass monkey and we'll jump in. <laughs> Okay, so the story that we're about to tell started way back in history in the late 70s, <laughs> early 80s with three guys named Adam Horwitz, Mike Diamond, and Adam Yawk. Dave, give us what you got, man. Well, first of all, I'm going to throw you for a loop. I'm going to take this story all the way back to 1890. Woo! Because okay. as Hold everybody here. knows, 1890 was the year that Margaret Naumberg was born. Margaret Naumberg was a psychologist, an <laughs> educator, an, an artist, and had learned some theories about child education over in Italy, brought it back to America. In 1914, she opened the Walden School in Manhattan. 
heard of this. Okay, so this is the very first of the progressive education model schools in America, okay. which is basically let the kids decide what they want to do. Don't yeah. give them homework. Don't give them rules. Let them decide what they're interested in. The kids discovering their own way. But it, it appealed to the upper class and the well-to-do in Manhattan society. Forward that to the 1970s, yeah. there's a kid going to school there named Jeremy Chaton. Now, he had an older brother, and that older brother had a friend, and that friend had a younger brother. His name was Michael Diamond. And so Jeremy Chaton and Michael Diamond just kind of by default kind of became friends because they were around each other because their brothers were buddies. Yep. And yep. Michael Diamond was somebody whose father was an art dealer and they put him in the Walden school and they were going to school together. Kind of separate from that, Jeremy was also friends with another Walden school classmate named John Barry. Now, John mm -hmm. Barry played guitar and Michael Diamond was starting to learn how to play drums. They were junior high. They were like seventh and eighth grade. Yeah. Yeah. He said, I need to introduce my two buddies to each other. They don't know each other yet. Right. One plays guitar, one plays drums. So it's like, John, this is Mike. Mike, this is John. And they started playing a little bit. So the earliest formation of the Beastie Boys began around 1978 with John Barry and Michael Diamond playing together. And Jeremy Chatan was the one, Chatan was the one who got them together. I heard that they were introduced at a Joe Jackson concert. Yes, because that's the influence for the Beastie Boys is Joe Jackson. Joe Jackson, right? <laughs> Stepping out, right? So Mike D and John Barry are at a, at a Joe Jackson concert. This is their first time they've met. And John Barry is acting like a wild man. Like he's going crazy, barely keeping his seat. And Mike D is like, who is this guy? This guy's crazy. This guy, I don't like this guy at all. Like this guy is not for me. But then they found out that they both liked punk music. Yeah, they both like The Clash. And so they kind of bonded over that. So one thing that was true about the late 70s and the early 80s New York club scene was there was a diversity in the music. Like if you went to a hardcore punk club, you were likely to hear soul or funk or even hip hop. And you go to any other dance club, they're going to include punk in their uh, in their playlist, too. So they were exposed to a lot of different kinds of music. So it's not weird for me to hear that these two punk rockers met at a Joe Jackson concert. <laughs> in 1979, there was a man by the name of Dave Parsons who lived in Boca Raton, Florida, okay. and he started a fanzine for punk music called The Mouth of the Rat. During this time, he yeah. received a fan letter from a musician in New York in the punk scene. Her name was Kate Schellenbach. Yes. Well, he moved to New York City in 1979, opened up his own record store, The Rat Cage, or Rat Cage Records. And within three days of living in New York, he met both Kate Schellenbach and John Barry at a club. And yeah. Kate Schellenbach was someone who was bouncing around different bands, playing drums. Mike and John are in a band called Band, B-A-N. And okay. Kate Schellenbach is in a band called Bag Ladies. And yeah. it was at, they were all in one venue at the same spot one night and they all kind of met each other. And the three of them decided they wanted to start a band. I think that they had known each other like at a younger age, but recognized each other and kind of renewed their friendship at that point. So they had a drummer, Mike already, but then yeah. Kate comes along as a drummer. So she becomes the percussionist and Mike remains a drummer. And John is a guitarist. So yeah. Jeremy Chaton, the common friend who got them all together in the first place, decides he'll play bass. 
And so in the early months of 1981, the very beginning of 81, they form a band and call themselves the Young Aborigines. There we go. Yep. Yep. But eventually Mike Diamond took over as the lead singer and Kate became the drummer. And they played a grand total of two gigs in their entire existence. And both of them were on the same day. In June of 1981. And now, you know the, uh, the world famous song that the young Aborigines came up with, right? This song was recorded on June 19th, 1981. The song is called Asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Get, you know, that was on uh, regular rotation on my pop, uh, pop 40 hit. As I understand that the entire, the entirety of the lyrics to that song was Mike Diamond repeating the title over and over again at the top of his lungs. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds some, about right. Yeah. Yeah. Some, some you know, deep lyrics. Yeah. I mean, but we, we're talking, they're teenagers at this point. Oh yeah. They're um, early, yeah. early high school. Yes. Yes. And, uh, and it was during these months in 81 leading up to that fateful night, June 19th of the, apex of the young aborigines career <laughs> that, that uh, i do know that michael diamond did meet adam yawk at a bad brains performance and they had kind of noticed each other but they weren't saying anything to each other because the tough guys don't do that right and they decided that they were they were just going to not like each other for a while but eventually they found out that they were into the same stuff of course and after the young aborigines performed their two gigs on the same night Jeremy Shatan had to leave for the summer. And when he left, Adam stepped in. Adam Yawk stepped in and became the new bassist. And at that point, John Barry suggested they change their name to the Beastie Boys. Boys entering anarchistic states towards inner excellence. Boys. Well, and that's according to their legend. I think that came a few years later. Yeah. I think you're right. I yeah. think that was afterwards. That's, yeah. a, that's a reverse anagram, I think. <laughs> that was John Barry's idea. He came up with the name Beastie Boys. And their very first gig was on August 5th of 81 at Adam Yawk's 17th birthday party <laughs> at John Barry's loft. They just had a few friends over. It was not a paying gig. But they all got up on stage and the Beastie Boys performed for the first time. So that was Adam Yawk's 17th birthday party. And I think he was a couple of years older than the other other guys, the other people mm-hmm. in the band. And so Mike Diamond said that that was the first time he'd ever been drunk. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> we've got some uh, common gig. interests and we've got a lot of lack of parental control here. One th- quick thing about Adam Yawk is when he was in high school, he took an aptitude test. They did a career aptitude test for all the kids. He took his. And the only thing that there, that his aptitude test concluded was that he should never go into anything related to music. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. That's perfect. So after this uh, night at for his birthday party at John Barry's loft, they do get a paying gig opening for another band in November of 81. And then by December 11th, they're opening for Bad Brains, which is a band that they, there's a big name in the punk scene and they were big fans of it. So they were excited to play for Bad Brains. I don't know what happened that night, but whatever it was, they decided they were quitting. They decided it wasn't fun anymore. And the Beastie Boys broke up in December of 1981. Wow. Yes, absolutely. They were, they were done. You know, this is, no one's got dreams of being rich and famous. It's just casual band. You're in and out of bands all the time. This one was over. But then Dave Parsons, the owner of Rat Cage Records, 
had been at the party. He had told them at the time that he was thinking about launching his own record label. And so in December, he came up to them and said, I'm ready to record with you guys. Why don't we put some of your material and record it? So the band had already broken up and they decided to reunite just to record at Dave Parsons' new studio. Well, the studio was owed a lot of back rent and the landlord was threatening to take all their equipment in return for back pay and kick them out. Yep. And so they had to hurry up. They had two days to record only at night. They had to sneak in. They had two days to, to do an entire EP. They recorded an EP called Polywog Stew. Yeah. Now, the way punk music was at the time is everything is very, very brief. These songs are less than two minutes long, I think, most of them. Yeah. But they got in. They recorded with John Barry in the lineup. They did a hardcore punk EP called Polywog Stew. But then they lost the equipment. They lost the studio. There was a guy there working as an engineer named Scott Jarvis who snuck away with a tape machine. And he was able to mix what they had cut at home in his bedroom. And it's only because of that guy that they were able to get this EP finished and released and get it out there. So what were the songs that were on Bollywog Stew? Beastie Revolution was one that was on there. Uh huh. And also they're probably their most famous one because they kept it in their set for a long time was Egg Raid on Mojo. Right. So Egg Raid on Mojo was about a bouncer at one of the clubs. There if was, you say so, I can't understand a thing they say. So there was, <laughs> there was a bouncer at one of the clubs named Mojo and he would never let them come into the club because they were kids. You know, they were able to sneak into other places, but not the place they wanted to go. And so I don't think it ever happened. I think it was just a song about their dreams of getting a bunch of eggs and pelting Mojo with the eggs. And so that's that's what the egg raid on Mojo is all about. So after they recorded this and before it was released, they broke up again because they were already done. So they got together to do this recording and they were done. But what happened was there was somebody in the club scene that made the trip to L.A. and took a selection of songs from the New York scene and had them played on the radio in Los Angeles. And one of the songs from Polywog Stew was performed in California. And so interest in the Beastie Boys began to spark and began to grow, even though they were technically no longer together. Apparently, from what I've read, because they started to get interest, John Barry decided to quit the group. He didn't want it to get too serious, I guess. I don't know. He didn't want, maybe it was becoming too professional. I, I don't think know. He had some, I think he had some substance abuse issues that he was dealing with as well. You know, a little he, bit of a drinker. I think there was probably some attitude issue as well, but yeah. Alcohol plus punk rocker equals bad attitude, tough to deal with. So they need a guitarist. Now, what do you know about another hardcore punk band called the Young and the Useless? That yeah, that band had a guy in it named Adam Horwitz. Yep. When John Barry quit the Beastie Boys. It was only natural for Adam Horowitz to kind of step over and take over as the guitarist for the Beastie Boys. Dave, I was telling D before we started this, you know, I was like, I don't really think I'm a hip hop guy very much. But what I found out was I'm really not a hardcore punk guy. <laughs> yes. That is I'm not my that. style. Very loud, very loud. The Young and the Useless did record their own EP, also on Rat Cage Records. It was called Real men don't floss, and it, <laughs> it is just as much of a sonic assault as Polywog Stew. <laughs> um, but anyway, by the time that was released, Adam Horowitz was with 
the Beastie Boys. Yeah. I did find out a couple of interesting things about the Young and the Useless bandmates. Their other lead singer, Dave Skilkin, he he died of a drug overdose in the early 90s. He was a really close friend. When they first met him, they noticed him and they were like, here's this kid, you know, it's middle of the school day and he's obviously skipping class and walking around with a synthesizer in his hand as like a mohawk haircut. And they're like, this kid looks cool. And they meet him. He's in sixth grade, <laughs> 11 years old. They're like 15 and he's 11. And they're like, this dude's cool. We need to hang out with him. So yeah, Dave Skilkin was a, an interesting guy. I believe he's in the Fight for Your Right video, if I remember right. The, the other two guys in The Young and the Useless, Arthur Africano, he would go on to be a cameraman working in Hollywood. He's worked camera for shows like Picket Fences and The Practice. So he went on and had a pretty solid career in television. He also shot a few of the Beastie Boys videos, such as Intergalactic in the 90s. And there was yet another Adam, Adam Trez or Trezzy, and he would go on to be an actor. And he performed in 30 Rock and um, Law and Order and Sopranos and things like that. So the young and the useless, they ended up being kind of significant. And Dave Parsons says they were better than the Beastie Boys. And in the world of hardcore punk, they were they had the potential to be huge. But it was, a, it was a case of bad timing because by the time their EP came out and there was interest in them, they were kind of already losing their direction because Adam Horowitz was hanging out with the Beastie Boys. Okay, so about this time, they recorded a song called Cookie Puss. So where does that come from? It comes from a ice cream commercial. Like they make an ice cream that's called the Cookie Puss. Yeah, so that, like it's like a it's like an ice cream cake. <laughs> so I watched this. Have you seen the, the commercials for this? So Carnell ice cream had a, like an ice cream cake is really weird looking. So like the nose was like a laid down ice cream cone and it had a high pitched voice. It's like, hi, I'm cookie Puss. <laughs> and uh, on, wait, 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 how, how did it go? Hi, I'm cookie Puss. <laughs> and on, on St. Patrick's day, they would have, oh, cookie Puss or cookie opus. Cookie opus. Cookie opus. Happy St. Patrick's day from Carnell. Here's my good buddy, Cookie Opa. <laughs> Adam Horvitz thought it would be hilarious to call uh, the Carnell ice cream and ask to speak with Cookie Puss. And they recorded this prank call, and then they just put it down on a beat, and it was just kind of this goofy song. Yo, man, Cookie Puss there? Who? Cookie Puss. I want to speak to Cookie Puss, man. No, nobody here by that name. Uh, cookie Opus then. Cookie but it became popular yeah they started playing it at clubs and then they go to they go to see a friend who's working at a studio and they find out that there's a talk show going on upstairs it was a lesson on how to properly scratch like it had yes it had african bombata and dj jazzy J, I think was the other guy on there and they were teaching these little you know white suburbanites how to properly scratch their records and then all of a sudden like there's a question from the audience and the host he goes back there and then adam horwitz stands up and he's like uh hey yeah have you heard of this song called uh cookie puss and and africa bombada was like yeah yeah i've heard it yeah I've heard it's this good. good song yeah. it's got a funky i beat. like it yeah um, i was just wondering there's a song that i really like called cookie puss by the beastie boys i was wondering if you ever heard of it yes i have a cookie puss i've i've gotten the record through the rock pool it's tough yeah, you like that one? Why do you like yeah. that one? It's, it's just a really funny song I heard on the radio. Yeah, it's got, is that, that scratching and, and uh, work on it like that? <laughs> it has a little bit of scratching on it, and it's, it's, it's funky. And so now they're on, like, national television and a talk show, and they've announced their album, and it was all just 
them being goofy, dumb kids. Brilliant marketing right there. Yeah. Well, what was interesting is that they were still a punk band, but Cookie Puss is not a punk track. And right. It's got hip hop beats and it's got hip hop effects, you know, scratching and things like that on it. You, uh, you can't say they're really rapping on it, but it's definitely a hip hop arrangement. Yeah. And um, it was the first time they had introduced anything like that to what they were doing. Yeah. And, and it, it did take off and it did gain attention and it, it gained attention among the hip hop community. And there are well, a lot of it's people. Important, it's important to note that at this time, like this is when Sucka MCs comes out, right? This is when Run DMC becomes, it's, you know, whatever boombox is playing in New York City. And so at that point, they become rap devotees. Like they were emulating and trying to imitate everything that Run DMC was doing. And they ended up getting a, they were going to be in the battle of the bands. They, they were, they were in a battle of the bands at studio 54, the studio 54. Say what? Yeah. So they've got this, they've got there. They're like, okay, we got the battle of the bands. Cookie Puss is our song, but we just recorded it. We've never done it live. We've got to have a DJ to do a live show. And somebody's like, you know who you should talk to? You should talk to my buddy, Rick, who's an NYU student. Rick Rubin. Rick freaking Rubin. Rick freaking Rubin. Who at this point was just a kid in, in the, college. Yeah, in a college. kid in college. Yeah. A weird kid in college. But go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> so Rick Rubin at the time that they met him was the social director for the student union at NYU, which probably <laughs> means he was just a professional partier is going to be my guess. Excuse but, me. Uh, I'm out of toilet paper. Can you help <laughs> me out with that? So it's interesting because Rick Rubin, I, he was going to NYU with the intention of going to law school. And I've got more on that later, but he was going with the intention to go to law school. But he said, I never scheduled a class before 3 p.m. because I knew I wouldn't be awake before then because he was spending every night going out to the clubs where like all of the rap music was playing. And he had noticed, you know, he'd get excited about these albums and then he'd get the album. He'd be like, this doesn't sound like the live show. This doesn't sound the way that the club sounds. I want that sound. And that was kind of the impetus for him to decide, hey, I want to do some DJing and ultimately want to do some producing. Here's the thing about Rick Rubin. He started out in punk. He was a punk rocker. Yeah, in he fact, was in a couple of bands, right? Yeah. When he was in high school, his first band was called The Pricks. The Pricks. Now, the pricks never the pricks. actually the pricks never really made it out of Long Island, except they had a gig one night at CBGB's. Have you heard about this? So at their performance, a fight breaks out in the audience and a cops are coming in and shutting the place down during the fight. So they, the cops come right in and shut it down. As it turns out, even though the fight was real, they had friends of theirs as plants in the crowd to kind of get things started. They were the provocateurs and they made the fight happen. And the cop, (laughs) (laughs) get this, the cop that busted in to shut them all down. He happened to be right on the scene. He busts in the door and shuts the whole performance down. That was Rick Rubin's dad in a, in a, in a costume. (laughs) Wow. That's brilliant. So it's all just a marketing setup. Yes. It's a way to get some notoriety and some, some publicity. Wow. That <laughs> is fantastic. cool. That's a great story. That's a good story. Yep. When he goes on to NYU, he forms a band called Hose. Hose was a hardcore punk band, but then by 83, what Rick was personally finding was that the punk scene seemed to kind of be dying off. And what he had discovered was the hip hop scene and the, the rap scene. 
Right. And he, his mind was blown and he was going to all these clubs and hearing you know, all this pure hip hop, you know, in its earliest stages, he was hearing the, the innovators. He was, he's there at ground zero for the birth of this whole scene. But what he realized was that there was a lot of similarity between rap from this era and punk because they both shared the same outlaw kind of attitude. They both shared a, 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 a like a lo-fi do-it-yourself type of ethic to it. And I mean, honestly, you didn't need a lot of technical musical talent. It, right. that, you know, musical talent was not a barrier of entry into either <laughs> one of these genres. To this day, Rick Rubin will, will say he's not a musician. And he's also not particularly good with mix a mixing board. It's it's just not what he does. His his expertise is figuring out what's going to be good music, like what people are going to like. Dave, what you said that that really blew my mind because to me, hardcore punk and rap have nothing in common. But then when I started watching these videos and doing research for this podcast, they do have some commonalities. You know, uh, for them to pivot from that to this and it not being that far is kind of interesting to me. Yeah. So there was also what I said before about there was this diversity of selection of music being played in these clubs. So kids were getting exposed to all kinds of stuff. It wasn't strictly what you might think in terms of genre and category. And Africa Bambada has said that the punk rockers were the very first white audience to accept what he was doing, except that rap sound. So there was already. Before the Beastie Boys came along, there was already kind of an organic connection happening in the clubs between punk rockers and, and rap. Okay, guys, before we go any further, let's take a quick break and we are going to do the Shirley Showcase. We have a special guest this time. Yeah, we've got my buddy Cameron Eckert. He was my college roommate, uh, one of my best friends in the entire world. He decided to weigh in on our Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 versus Metallica's Black album, kind of that uh, run of 91 albums that we did this summer. And here's what Cameron had to say. Hello, Shirley, you can't be serious podcast. Hey, this is Cameron from Vancouver, Canada. Such a fan of you guys and your show from day one. And yes, that may be because I knew it was coming, being a very good friend of Jason Colvin, one of my college roommates. But you know what? I've loved it from day one. You guys are great together. You can tell that you are friends first and podcast co-host second. I'm very honored that Jason asked me to send in a comment. And as a music fan, and a hard rock music fan at that, I definitely had to choose Metallica Black versus Guns N' Roses, Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. I'm a bigger fan of hard rock than most other genres. I steer clear from, however, some of the softer groups like Poison and Warrant. And yes, Jason, Bon Jovi, huge fan of both Metallica and Guns N' Roses, though. Tend to like Guns N' Roses a little bit better. However, in the case of Black versus Use Your Illusion 1 and 2, I have to agree with D on this one. All in all, I like the Black album just that bit better than either Use Your Illusion 1 or 2. I would, however, agree with you guys that Use Your Illusion 2 is the better of those two albums. I'll tell you, though, for, for me, it's a um, very close race between all three of them. One A, B, and C, really. But if I'm walking out the door, I'm definitely going to skew towards Metallica Black. I became a huge Metallica fan probably off this album, which I know may be sacrilege to the harder core Metallica fans is that tend to like their earlier harder core work. But I just found this album to be great. And it made me actually go back 
and become a fan of Metallica's earlier work. So I've really appreciated that about the Black Album. I did find that this release from 30 year anniversary of it with all the different artists doing their takes on it was very cool to listen to. Obviously there was some good stuff in there and, and some not so good, but it was just interesting to see what kind of influence that album had on this generation. You know, and, and I think Guns probably had a big influence too, but their, um, their work seemed to spread over Appetite through Use Your Delusion 1 and 2 a little bit more. I liked Appetite a bit better than these albums, no matter what Axel thinks of them. And I don't know, I just I think I would take Appetite over Black, but against Use Your Illusion 1 and 2, I'm still going to stick with, with the Black album. I do find it amusing that in, the, in this case, and in most of you guys' final judgments, no matter the topic, I tend to agree more with D than with Jason. It's funny because I'm the same age as Jason, and we kind of you know, went through the formative college years together. But I think I've evolved my tastes maybe a little bit more than Jason over the years. He's stayed with the pop culture of the 80s and 90s, and, and I've kept going forward, which may be why it's a little bit different. So maybe makes some sense. Anyway, guys, I just wanted to uh, weigh in on that and wanted to tell you to keep up the great work. I look forward to seeing what other music, movies, and other topics you guys cover in the future. Take care. Well, what can I say? I mean, I don't know about, uh, you know, evolution in the musical taste area, but uh, right is right. And <laughs> Black Album is just a better album. That's just the way it is. It's uh, facts, you know, facts. Right, right. <laughs> Cam, thank you very much. Uh, these head is now humongous. I can't even fit in the room. Uh, thank you for taking the time to weigh in. We do love all three of these albums. And I think all three of us agree that Usual Illusion 2 is the better Guns N' Roses album. However, I can't really fault you for loving Metallica and the Black Album. So, Cameron, thank you so much, bro. We appreciate you. Thanks, Cameron. By the time of 83 rolls around, Rick is just like all in. He's forgotten about punk. He's still a classic rock guy. He loves ACDC, Led Zeppelin, Aerosmith. He's a big fan of those guys. But he is obsessed with what's happening, the innovation and creativity he's hearing in, in the hip-hop clubs. And he's learning how to be a DJ and scratching and programming, drum machine and all that kind of stuff. And he's all about it. Well, he finds a kindred spirit in Adam Horowitz. So what happens is you were saying, we pick up the story, the BC boys are a punk band, they're playing punk sets, but now they are expected to play Cookie Puss. And to truly be able to do that justice on stage, they gotta have a DJ. So they found Rick Rubin, they were introduced to him. He went by the name DJ Double R. He would come on at the end of their set to DJ for them so they can start incorporating a little hip hop into their shows. Yeah, the show would start with punk music and end with hip hop music basically, right? That's right. Rick Rubin got the job kind of like the way David Lee Roth got the lead singer in Van Halen. Except instead of having a PA, he had he a had bubble him. machine. He had the mix. He yeah. had the bubble machine. The bubble machine. The bubble machine is what, what led them in. He's like, like, he's got this awesome setup and he's got a bubble machine. And they're like, wait, a bubble machine? Yeah, we <laughs> got to get the guy with the bubble machine. When they met him, when they walk into his dorm room, like, they, this can't be the hip hop DJ guy because he's got the beard and yeah. his hair's all scraggly. And he's got like these leather long gloves, like black leather gloves. And like, this dude's weird, but he ends up being like a big brother to him. And his music knowledge and his determination to succeed is infectious. David Lee Roth, Rick Rubin, 
both get the job because they happen to have a piece of equipment that's needed <laughs> to get the job done. So just just to touch on it, since I mentioned the Battle of the Band, Studio 54, they lost. <laughs> well, what happened was Rick continued to, to hang out with them. He befriended them, probably closer to Adam Horvitz than the others, but they were all spending a lot of time at his dorm room. So they, his dorm room has been described as like a bomb site. It's about as slovenly as you can imagine, and just pro wrestling posters on the wall, pizza boxes <laughs> stacked up in the corner, and just crates and crates of music from all different types of categories. Through the course of 1983, he's talking to the Beastie Boys about how they need to incorporate, they need to do more hip hop. It makes sense for them to kind of go down that hip hop route because Cookie Bus is having success. Yeah. I mean, you'd want to chase that type of success. It's not like the hardcore punk was their dream. They were doing this for fun. I mean, they were trying to have a good time and make each other laugh and be silly. And so for him to go, hey, you guys should focus more on hip hop and less on punk rock. I don't see any, it's not surprising to me. They're like, okay, whatever, that works, sure. That worked. Let's, I mean, plus, let's keep trying to do that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so the guys were, I don't know where Kate was. She was still in the band. They were still doing punk shows. But the guys were hanging out in Rick's dorm room a lot every day, just going through his crates, just hanging out and having fun. But they're still gigging as the Beastie Boys. And Rick is further exploring the rap scene. And he eventually befriends a club DJ named Jazzy J. Yeah. Uh, Jazzy J was on the air in New York and he was a member of Africa Bambata's Zulu Nation, which is just a big organization of rappers and hip hoppers that are all about world peace, really, and really trying to use music in a positive way to deter, to steer people away from violence and things like that, and using music to kind of build culture and cultural bridges. And he got to know Jazzy J, and Jazzy J and Rick Rubin got together and they produced a track and they decided they wanted to try to release this as a song. So they went about trying to find someone to rap over this track and they couldn't find a rapper. It took them like two years from the time they decided to get together to put the song out. I'm sitting right next to a rapper. <laughs> Why did it take them so long? There's more to come, man. There's more to come, I'm just saying. If they only knew about Dr. Fresh back then. <laughs> Let's see, 1983, totally I was like seven years old. Yeah, that's <laughs> Dr. Very Fresh. But anyway, <laughs> uh, the first choice they had for a rapper, they wanted Cool Mo D. Now, wild, for Cool Mo D was somebody that I recognize as a solo artist from the, from the second half of the 80s. Yeah, but yeah. at this time, he was a member of a, a very significant group called the Treacherous Three. Okay. And they couldn't get Cool Mo D. And they couldn't get uh, uh, Special K, which was another member of the Treacherous Three. Their record label wouldn't let them do it. So they turn to Special K's older brother, T. La Rock. T. La Rock. And T. La Rock became their artist. And he came in and recorded the rap over the track that Rick Rubin and Jazzy J had produced. And at the end of the song, they need some background vocals, just doing nonsense stuff in the background. Those background vocals belong to Adam Horvitz, Adam Yawk, and Michael Diamond. <laughs> Nice. Freaking awesome. Nice. So the song that they came up with is called It's Yours, and it's really good. I mean, Rick had hit upon that formula that he was looking for, trying to get the club sound onto a record. And one of the people who heard this track, It's Yours, um, was a manager named Russell Simmons. And he was managing for his brother's group, among others. 
Um, his brother's name is Joe Simmons, but we know him by a different name. I'm the king of rock. DJ Run. Run of Run DMC. Yep, that is cool. When he was also going to get into the picture here. It, I've, I've got a good story on that one. Okay. <laughs> well, at this time, Russell Simmons is one of the biggest names in the business as a right. as an artist manager. He not only managed Run DMC, which was the biggest act, he right. also managed a, a lot of other acts, including Houdini and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Curtis Blow, and a few others at the time. Yeah. When he finds out that it's some white NYU kid who's produced It's Yours, and that white NYU kid is like, hey, I want to meet you and I want to talk to you, they get together for lunch. And Adam and Mike and Adam are all there, like at a different table, just kind of watching eagerly about <laughs> what's going on. And basically, he he talks Russell Simmons into starting a record label. And Russell Simmons is like, man, I'm busier than I can be with managing these groups. I don't want to have to start something new. And Rick Rubin says, you don't have to do anything but be my partner. He goes, without you, I'm just an NYU college student. With you, I've got a name. I will do all the work. You just be my partner name. And so Russell Simmons agrees to it. And that's how we come to the formation of Def Jam Records. Wow. Yes. Awesome. So when, it, when It's Yours was released, it was released with the name Def Jam on it. But Def Jam didn't actually exist as a company at that point. It was just a name and a logo that Rick Rubin had come up with. It had been, it was actually released through a small local independent label. Mm -hmm. But it was a name that he already had and it already used unofficially. And then in the summer of 1984, you, you got it exactly right. So he and Russell Simmons sat down and, and, and Russell went to his dorm room, stepped through the mess and listened to the beats he had programmed. And he's, he was blown away and said these were all hits in the making. Yeah. And so they formed the record label and they officially became Def Jam Records in the summer of 1984. So as you mentioned, they were spending a whole lot of time with Rick. And as that happened, they were spending a whole lot less time with Kate Schellenbach, who was their drummer. And kind of that influence is what led to her being asked to leave the band. And I think they still, even today, feel bad about this. Now, it ends up being kind of okay because she ends up being a drummer for a group called Luscious Jackson, who ends up doing shows with them. But at the time, they were just like, hey, we're a, you know, we're a guys band and we are a hip hop now band. And so we don't really want to have a girl drummer. And so they they kick Kate out. Now, before that happens, before that happens, they get to go to Russell Simmons office and they are thinking because he's the because he's the manager of these gr huge groups, they think it's going to be this big showy office. And it's like two rooms, you know, it's like two small rooms even together. But when they go in, there is Curtis Blow <laughs> in talking to Russell Simmons. And he's not just talking to Russell Simmons. He is trying to learn how to break dance. <laughs> so so there's, a, there's another group called Full Force that's there with him. And they're like all around him as he's trying to do like head spins and stuff. And the Beastie Boys are like, you know, they've they've met some of their idols now. Curtis Blow is sitting here, and I told I told J uh, I told Jason on the way over here, I was like, man, Curtis Blow is one of those albums that I played all the time. He's like, I don't, I'm not familiar with that. I'm like, dude. 
basketball is my favorite sport. I like the way they dribble up and down the court, just like I'm the king of the microphone with Dr. J and Moses Malone. I like slam dunks. They take me to the hoop. My favorite play is the alley-oop. I like the big and go. I like the give and go. It's basketball with Mr. Curtis Blow. I used to play it all the time when my brother would come out at his wow. basketball games in high school. I, I it was I was deep into it. I remember those lyrics from hearing them when I was seven, eight years old. Dr. J and, and Moses Malone. Wow. Yep. 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 And they were at the end of the song. There's like talk going on, and they're like talking about you know the new young upstarts. The new young upstarts is Michael Jordan. <laughs> new young upstarts, Michael Jordan. That yeah. is awesome. Yeah, I, I got to tell you about a guy named Todd who was living in Queens during 1984. A guy named he Todd. Was, <laughs> he was living in he Queens. Was, okay. He was down in his mother's basement with a drum machine and a turntable, cutting demos and sending them out to anybody he could find. Okay. And he sent to everybody, including when he got a hold of a copy of Tila Rock's "It's Yours." Rick Rubin had put the uh, address, the business address, which was just his dorm room, on, <laughs> on the record. Right. And so Todd sent a demo, took that address and sent a demo to that record company. Right. It was just Rick's dorm room is all it was. And that demo tape got thrown in a box, which was probably buried under a bunch of other boxes. And it just all stacked up. All the stuff was coming in. Demo tapes were coming in after Tila Rock's record was out. And Rick Rubin wasn't bothering with any of it. But the Beastie Boys were hanging out in his dorm room, just killing time every day. They had anything else to do. And Adam Horvitz is just kind of thumbing through these demos and he'd listen to a little bit. And if he found something he liked, he'd tell Rick about it. Well, he put this one on called I Need a Beat from a guy named Ladies Love Cool James. And it was it was James Todd Smith who had sent this in. And he's like, Rick, you might want to listen to this. And they were blown away by it. They bring in Todd Smith. He goes by the name LL Cool J. And they're like, you've got to meet Russ. We, we want to produce your record. They had just formed Def Jam Records. They hadn't put out a record yet. They were looking for the artist. They were looking for the song to launch their label. He said, you got to meet Russ. You got to meet Russ. They go in. They meet Russ. The, the, the LL Cool J is meeting Russ Simmons for the first time. And Rick Rubin plays the tape. And Russell Simmons is like, I hate it. I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So young Todd, he's all, he's all disappointed. And he's walking out kind of sad. And Rick Rubin comes up to him and says, don't listen to a word he says. We're going to recut this, and he's going to love it. So they get back in the studio with Adam Horowitz programming the drum beats. They recut I Need a Beat, I need a beat. with Jazzy J on the remix. They play it for Russ. They play that one for Russell Simmons. He's blown away. He loves it, and that launches LL Cool J's career. And it launches Def Jam as a label, and I Need a Beat becomes their very first single. It came out in 1984. Fantastic. Wow. That's That's a good story, man. Yeah. And then from Pollywog Stew, they had a British Airways commercial had lifted one of their songs, BC Revolution, and placed it in their commercial that went global. It went international. They did it without permission. And the Beastie Boys decided they didn't like somebody sampling their music without permission. Yeah, and so early on, this is the this is the John Barry lineup, the punk lineup with Pollywog Stew. They sue, and they collect forty thousand dollars. Yep, it was the first money the Beastie Boys ever made was off of this situation, and it was enough to get them out of their parents' house, and they all got a place together. Yep, forty thousand so, dollars adjusted for inflation today is about a hundred grand. 
It's not a bad. That's not a bad take. Well, no. Fast forward to three years to 1984. They put out Rock Hard, which really sounds like a Rick Rubin record, and it sounds like the Beastie Boys. This is the sound we have. We will come to know. It's the three male Beastie Boys rapping over a hip-hop drum beat, but with heavy rock and roll samples, and it's all built around Back in Black by ACDC. And I think significantly, they refer to themselves as King Ad Rock, Mike D, and MCA in the song, which is probably the first time they do that, and they're truly kind of embracing hip-hop at this point. Small problem. They sampled somebody else's music without their permission. <laughs> ACDC is like, who are these guys? Yeah. No, stop it right now. So mm-hmm. even though it was technically Def Jam's second release, they immediately had to recall it and it was no longer available. And it was a collector's item and a bootleg for a long time. It's still not available on Spotify, I've noticed. But I do know that at least in Europe, it was cleared for release legally in 2007. ACDC gave them permission and you can find the song on YouTube and I just heard it recently for the first time and it's actually really good. They found their voice. They don't sound like some other band. They know they they weren't they're not imitating somebody else. They have their own unique sound and that's Hey, little thing. Here's a little thing I just put together on that. So they steal Back in Black from ACDC. They rap over it whatever. They sample it without permission. It turns out okay because in 1986 Guess who's in the Fight for Your Right video? Mutt Langa. Mutt Langa. I forgot about that. That's right. He was in there. The producer of ACDC's Back in Black. I think Flea was in there, too, if I remember right. Flea, LL Cool J, and Tabitha the gir- Soren. Tabitha Soren, the girl who was like later on MTV News, was in there as the young blonde. You're, you're blowing my stuff for you Fight for Your Right. <laughs> Sorry. We'll, we will come back to that when we do our track to track. Okay. When, when's Madonna get in here? I'm okay, ready for I got, Madonna. I got a good story on Madonna. Can I tell my Madonna story now? Yeah, just real quick. When 84 ended, that's when Kate Schellenbach was out, and they truly just became straight-up hip-hop group with Rick Rubin still as their DJ. And we get into 85, and that's Madonna. So what you got? So Madonna is So going- what you, what you, what you... Go ahead. <laughs> no, please, please, please finish that. <laughs> so what Madonna wanted? Yes. What 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 Madonna wanted was an opening act for her first tour. Her first tour, and so her manager Freddie Demand calls up Russell Simmons and says, "Hey." We want to get Run DMC as the opening act for Madonna on her first tour. Now, this is Madonna at her. Madonna. Like she's blown up at this point, right? This is like a virgin tour. And so Russell Simmons is like, no problem. Run DMC plays for $20,000 per show. And Freddie Demand's like, uh, no, have a nice day. Click. And right. they're done. And then he's a few minutes later, Russell Simmons gets a call again. It's Freddie Demand again. He's like, okay, hey, wait. What about the fat boys? Can you get the fat boys for us? <laughs> and Russell Simmons is like, ah, man, the fat boys are busy. Russell Simmons didn't actually manage the fat boys ever at all. Wow. And he goes, but I tell you what, um, I can get you the beastie boys for $500 per show. And so Freddie DeMann was like, sounds great. Let's do that. Wow. And so that is how the beastie boys became the opening act for Madonna on her very first tour. That is also yeah. how... 
Adam Horovitz got to make out with Madonna backstage in the bathroom. It's nuts. I was talking to you guys. I'm like, you know, that's not exactly an exclusive club, probably. <laughs> but that's a club that I still wanted to join in 1986. Oh, sure. Yeah. And she's I mean, she's a little bit older than him, I guess. Probably, Woo! And whoo, that would have been some fun times. Bringing the heat back then. Yeah, she was. Yes, she boy, was. Boy. Not that he was an unattractive guy, but wow. This was her first tour, so it was promoting both her debut Madonna album as well as her Like a Virgin album. So right. she was at the top of the game. She's one of the biggest names in pop music. And the Beastie Boys are coming out to open, and nobody's heard of these people. And they embraced, and this was quite intentional. Rick Rubin gave them this instruction. He was a pro wrestling fan. He said, nobody there knows you. They're going to hate your stuff. Just embrace it. Own that and be the heel, like in pro wrestling terms. You just go out there and be the be like a bad guy wrestler and just make them hate you. They were, and so they, they decided to be memorable by being rude wrestling style. And so they would literally go out when the show was over. They, they were just like, you all can just burn this place down now because there's never going to be a better show than us. And <laughs> F you, you mother effers, which if you're thinking about, you know, attendees at a beastie boys concert. Okay. But Think about who was listening to Madonna back in 1984, 85. These are little like preteen yeah. girls. Yeah. These are, these are like the girls who are our wives now back when they were, you know, 10 and 11. So they're cussing out little girls. <laughs> uh, yeah. They, they purposely set out to get people to hate them. And they did. And they said that 90, every night, 95% of the crowd absolutely hated them. But with the other 5%, they built a fan base and yeah. Madonna thought it was great. I mean, they absolutely did not take themselves seriously. Like the record would be playing. They're supposed to be lip syncing. They would completely ignore that and just like basically slam dance on stage and just laugh at it all. And they just didn't take it seriously. And they're, they're kind of on stage persona of being these rude, crude frat boys that just party hard and didn't care about anything. They, that really came, came together on this like a virgin tour. Um, and that rude, crude, frat boy attitude is basically full force on License to Ill. That's what you get for 12 songs or whatever. Yeah. And people did embrace that. They liked it. Yeah. But Clearly they it liked did, it. But it absolutely took rap out of the New York club scene, and it was, it was putting it in front of the nation. This was people's first exposure. Maybe it was not the best foot forward for rap, but it was significant in terms of getting some national exposure. Um, but then just a couple months later in October of 1985, there was a movie that came out. Now this movie was shot in April of 85. It was produced and starred Rick Rubin. It, it was produced and featured a cameo from Russell Simmons. It was called Crush Group. Now, this is coming after 1984, where there had been several breakdance movies. And so there were some low-budget film studios that were looking to continue to capitalize on the hip-hop market for, for these low-rent movies. And they decided, instead of breakdance, they needed to do rap. There was no bigger name in rap in 1984 when they were looking to do this than Russell Simmons. And they basically approached him about doing taking a fictionalized version of his story, his biography, and putting it in a movie. And yeah. so that's what you get. Crush Groove is kind of a synonym for Def Jam. And it, it was the name of the record label inside this movie. And this movie is great. I love it. It's cheesy. It's terrible acting. 
and it's low budget. Well, but it, Blair uh, Underwood. You got Blair it, Underwood as the Russell Simmons character was like R- Russell Walker or something. Isn't that right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. mean, much, Blair Underwood is a much handsomer man than Russell Simmons is. I would have Russ, I would have Blair Underwood play me, even though we look nothing <laughs> like. But but Russell Simmons, look at this. I mean, he wanted to make a movie, but what his his objective was was make it a showpiece for all of the bands that he managed. And so yep. you've got just a slew of these mid '80s rap hip hop bands that are appearing throughout the movie. Run DMC, Curtis Blow, and Sheila E are kind of kind of drive the story. The Fat Boys were added without Russell's knowledge, was shot separately and cut into the movie separately. And if you'll notice, their scenes never advance the plot. So he was really upset to find out the Fat Boys were in his movie, but they were a big name and it drove the box office. The LO Cool J makes a cameo appearance. Uh, the Beastie Boys make a cameo appearance. And they performed a, a new song that they recorded in 1985 called She's On It. There's no confusion in her conclusion. What was interesting, at this point, Def Jam only had a couple of singles out. They had two successful singles. They had I Need a Beat and Rock Hard, which had to be pulled for legal reasons. They had put out several other smaller records that hadn't done anything. They had yet to put out an album. Def Jam had not even put out an album as a company yet, and there was already a movie in theaters that was giving their story. That's crazy. That's amazing. That's impressive. So what, what happens here, right at this time, this is critical, Right here, after the success of I Need a Beat and Rock Hard, it's enough success to garner interest from major record labels. And they end up signing a deal with Columbia for a distribution deal. So Def Jam has Columbia Records distributing for them So this is and the, gives them a huge infusion of cash. This is the story that I was, that I was alluding to earlier. So... Rick Rubin was supposed to be going to law school after NYU, right? That's that's what his parents are expecting. And so the way that he broke the news to his parents that he wasn't going to go to law school was that he sent them a picture of the check that he got from Capitol Records. It was for $600,000. Mom, I'm giving you 600,000 reasons why I'm not going to law school. <laughs> Well, that money was enough to move Def Jam out of his dorm room and <laughs> um, and move him to a three-story building, which Russell Simmons had Rush Management, which was his artist management business on the first floor. Def Jam Records was on the second floor, and Rick Rubin moved into the third floor. So that, that Columbia money allowed them to do that. But what it did was it set the stage for 1986. And 1986 is the year where it really all started coming together. Hold it now. Hit it. <laughs> four and three and two and one okay so obviously you know they they lost kate schnellenbach they've got dj double r rick rubin as their dj but at some point that changes because i know that dr dre no not that dr dre the other one from mtv raps that dr dre he was their dj for a while and he was their DJ for the first part of the Raisin Hell tour, right? But then how did it move from Rick Rubin to Dr. Dre? Well, I would say fate intervened. Um, it was during the Madonna tour in the summer of 85, where Rubin was still on the road with them and it was a part of the act. I mean, history was about to go a different way. This was gonna be a four piece act with DJ Double R as a part of the Beastie Boys. But after a couple of shows, he came down with an ear infection. And the doctor told him that he couldn't fly while he's recovering from this ear issue. Okay. And so he went back to New York 
the rest of the band didn't really know what had happened to him. They didn't know why he had he had bounced out, but they did get Dr. Dre to step in and fill in as the DJ. So Dr. Dre serves as the DJ for the rest of their takes over as their DJ for their gigs that point forward in the middle of the Madonna tour. Uh-huh. Oh, but, but the reason this is fate intervening is that this now freed Rick Rubin up to stay at the studio and to work on production and to and to work on beats and sounds and to develop the help de- develop the musical material that would be used on License to Hill. And I can tell you this: the Run DMC Raising Hell tour had already started yeah. without the Beastie Boys on it. And the reason I know is that I attended a show in May of 1986 that came to my hometown of Columbus, Georgia. And I saw Houdini and LO Cool J open for Run DMC. And they were playing material from their brand new Raising Hell album that I had not heard yet. And it was blowing me away. And the Beastie Boys were not a part of that show. What was happening was they were still in the studio working on the album. They were still putting their material together and having conducting their sessions. And it would be a little bit later in the year, not too much later. I didn't miss them by much, apparently. But they would join the Raising Hell tour during 1986 as an opening act. But their set consisted of only three songs. They sang uh, Slow and Low, She's On It, and Hold It Now, Hit It. And that's all they had. Every night they went out and did those three songs and they were done. A couple of stories about the Raising Hell tour. They're, you know, These guys are brash. They're rude. They offend on purpose. They think it's funny when they can get a reaction out of people. And they're real tight with Russell Simmons and Run DMC and the whole rap crowd, and they're accepted by the hip-hop community. Right? They're a part of it. And that's important to know when you think about their acceptance and, and, and the reaction to their album. It's easy, when it comes out, it's easy to think of them as a joke or a parody. But the truth is, they had credibility. They had cred. They were legit. They were from the scene. They knew all the right people. They, were, they, were, they, they had the credibility. But... This is 1986, and they were among friends. They wanted to offend people. They were using the N-word on stage as a part of their routine, which sounds crazy in 2021, but back then, with the environment they were in, it was a part of what they did. Here's the problem. The Raising Hell tour stopped at the Apollo Theater in Harlem. (laughs) They They were doing a show, and Russell Simmons is freaking out. He goes up to Dr. Dre, which is before the show starts, and says, whatever you do, do not let them say that word and dr dre's like what can i do i'm just back here spinning records i I, I can't help what comes out of their mouths sure enough they're in the middle of their show they're going ad rocks up front with his hands in the air getting the crowd going the crowd's with them he blurts it out he throws it out there immediately (laughs) (laughs) you could hear a pin drop everybody's just staring at him oh my goodness Uh, ad rocks got his Hands in the air. Uh, so he realized he's lost the crowd and he's like, what am I going to do? Mike D turns around at Dr. Dre. He's got fear in his eyes. He's looking at him on stage like, what do we do? What do we do? And Dr. Dre's like, I don't know. Adam Yaw and Mike D take off. They run off the stage. And Horowitz looks around, realizes he's by himself. Boom, he runs off the stage. The crowd is left staring at Dr. Dre. Like, <laughs> well, who are you hanging out with these clowns? Right. And he's like, uh, uh. He goes backstage himself. The Beastie Boys are gone. They're nowhere around. The tour bus is there. They're not there. They ran out the back door and got in a cab, and they were gone before Dre was even off the stage. (laughs) That's That's awesome. Uh, I can also tell you that at another stop on the tour, they were in Miami, and Dr. Dre overslept. 
and they left without him. He's still mad about that. I saw an interview. He's still mad about that. Well, he fell asleep in like it was like the couch in the lobby of the hotel or something, right? And he's like, "Just wake me up, don't you guys leave me, don't leave me, literally, don't leave me." And they left him anyway. And that is how DJ Hurricane yep. became because he had been with Run DMC before. And Dr. Dre was like, screw you guys. I'm going to go do Yo MTV raps. I'm joking, of course. That wasn't until much later. But uh, but yeah, that's how DJ Hurricane comes on. Now, what else also happens in Miami? We talked about this when we did our Aerosmith episode. This is where Joe Perry and Steven Tyler come in and they do the performance of Walk This Way with Run DMC, right? They're there to do just this one song. And so I think, I think it was run. I think it was run. No, maybe it was, mm, no, it was Jam Master J. Jam Master J goes, hey, Yuck, it'll be funny if you go out there and play bass with them. And so Yuck, who's mostly drunk at this time, goes out while Joe Perry and Steven Tyler are on stage performing Walk This Way with his bass. And they're like, who is this drunk kid out here? You know, what is this? And he keeps trying to do the back to back with Joe Perry and Joe Perry keeps like walking away from him. (laughs) And so he ends up chasing him around the stage, walking backwards, trying to be be cool with Aerosmith. Raising Hell album did come out in May of 86. Walk This Way came out as a single in July of 86. So here we are winding down the year and this song has taken over, right? We'll talk about it in the next episode, but Walk This Way was absolutely massive in breaking rap through to a crossover audience and kind of setting the table for, frankly, a white audience to embrace this, this new music form. And so by the end of 86, the Beastie Boys actually put out uh, another single, Paul Revere, is a single that comes out ahead of the release of the album. But on November 15th, License to Ill is released. So we're celebrating the 35th anniversary of that album this week as we speak. Today is Wednesday, November the 17th, the day that we're recording. Two days ago was the 35th anniversary. It's incredible. Well, are we ready to dive in track by track? <laughs> we're ready. All right, we're going to jump in track by track. Now, keep in mind, these guys are real musicians but they and i i I don't mean that that uh, hip-hop isn't real music but like they when they did their punk stuff they played the drums they played the guitar they played the bass they they were able to play those instruments it's just not what they were doing it wasn't their act but our friend adam yock was a guy who was like he was special like he you talked about how his profile said you should do anything except music don't do music i think that must have been inspiration for him because he studied it and so back before youtube back before google back before wikipedia he knew that Jimi hendrix and sly stone were doing stuff with this idea of looping a track right and so what, you know, people not, not today, today know what looping is, but back then nobody really knew. So one day Mike D and Adam Horwitz come in. And at this point, at this point, Yock is a superintendent of an apartment complex. Like he's, he's got a free place to say, because he's going to be the superintendent, which means there were people who had like their toilet go bad. And Adam Yock was the one that came and fixed the toilet. <laughs> And so they come in and he's got this reel to reel and he's got the tape going around one mic stand, going around another mic stand, going through a rocking chair and back in. 
And the beat that's playing is from Led Zeppelin's When the Levee Breaks. And it sounds like this. All right. So are we finally ready to go track by track through License to Ill? Yes. Yes? Next week. Next week? Not today. Sorry. All right, Dave, we'll catch you next time, and we'll do track by track through License Dill. Hey, if you've been with us this long, be sure to hit that subscribe button, that follow button, so that you catch our next episode next week, where we will go track by track through License to Ill. Eat me. Well, looking at my Gucci, it's about that time. <laughs> All right, thanks a lot, Dave. We'll see you next time. All right, thanks a lot.